0: Mulade, Usman Semben's final film, crowned an astonishing sequence of feature films that began in 1966 with Black Girl. Perhaps the most successful realization of his activist conception of cinema, Mulade is also a deceptively complex film. The studied artifice with which Semben depicts quotidian village life masks the film's multi layered complexity. Slyly suffusing African village life with a simultaneously enigmatic and soporific quality. If one does not watch attentively, making oneself look again and again at some puzzling, odd, puzzling, or odd aspects of the film, one will fail to see just how much of its argument reposes on some of its most understated and elusive elements. There are some very fine readings of Mulade uh, responding primarily to its uncompromising treatment of the practice of female genital cutting, a practice that cuts across literally and figuratively some of the most fiercely contested and entangled issues on the continent. Most prominent among them, an array of morally contested practices that suppress and deny the agency of women. However, the understandable preponderance of of responses to the film's treatment of female genital cutting has come at the cost of an unwarrantable neglect of the very phenomenon to which the film owes its name, sacred space. Mulade is a word from the Jula Bambara language family, widely spoken in West Africa. It can be translated oppositely either a sanctuary or a sacred space. Translating it as sanctuary does not fully convey in English the inviolability of the mulada, its standing as a sacred space, standing out from and against the profane spaces that surround it. In mulada, the standing is owed to a pre-colonial animistic tradition of belief that is interwoven with the founding history of the people whose contemporary descendants inhabit the secluded Burkina Faso village in which the film is set. No matter whether they are threatened or empowered by the invocation of the Mulade, the characters in the film are as unhesitating in their acknowledgement of its inviolability as they are fearful of its disruptive power. This is because the mulata is no passive entity internally limited to sheltering those inside its protective space. It possesses an uncontainable, vexatious agency of its own. From the moment it is invoked, the mulata triggers a cascading series of uncontrollable and unruly actions, enabling one very courageous woman's contestation of the practice of female genital cutting. Its significance, however, is reducible neither to a narrative device for kickstarting and a story of hero- heroic resistance to female purification nor to a troublesome remnant of a pre-Islamic African religion in conflict with Islam. Indeed, the mulata does not fit comfortably on either side of the sacred profane or secularism religion binaries. Rather, it exposes their conceptual limits by incarnating the variability and permeability of the spatial boundaries that putatively wall off the sacred from the profane. Especially significant are the multiple ways the mulata facilitates Semben's probing treatment of the spaces in which the ordinary and extraordinary are typically housed, prying them loose from those spaces in unexpected ways, making them both more and less extraordinary. Conjointly, the mulatto liberates spaces occupied through colonial dispossession and forced conversion, reclaiming them in the name of utopian and transformative aspiration. In the words of uh, Frantz Fanon, to re- to reclaim them, uh, sorry, to once and for all bring about not only the demise of colonialism, but also the demise of the colonized. As a consequence, Semben's complexly creative reinterpretation of the mulata as both a sanctuary and a political agency compels us to rethink how we understand sacred space and what we understand the sacred to be. Invoked in order to secure provisional refuge for a group of terrified pre-adolescent girls, unwilling to undergo the ritual of purification, the mulata does not stay in its place, inert and inanimate. It actively permeates the other spaces around it, overturning the spatial order, the spatial and normative order of the village. Going far beyond the protection and refuge it was called upon to provide, the mulada redraws and redefines the spatial boundaries between sacred and profane. Its unrestrainable impact is such that the customary exercise exercise of authority in the village gives way to a state of exasperating paralysis until such time as the mulada is revoked. The destabilizing effects radiating outward from the mulatta can be set in motion only because for a brief, evanescent moment, it simultaneously transcends and undermines all existing power and authority. But the reach of this venerable African practice offering temporary sanctuary to those in need extends beyond the boundaries of the film to which it lends its name. The Mulata performatively enacts a vision of cinema that I'm certain Sam Ben would have found extremely congenial, a vision of cinema as a fugitive space of refuge, a kind of sanctuary in which the task of envisioning how things might otherwise be is inseparable from exposing how things should no longer be. Mulata, the film, inhabits its own fug- fugitive space of refuge to enact a syncretic vision of politics in which longstanding traditions and practices confront one another, staging a process of reflection on the question of which one should be criticized and abandoned and which renewed and passed on. If the Malada can generate political possibilities awakened by the traces of the sacred latent in pre-colonial African religious traditions, it is because these traditions have not simply died off. On the contrary, in spite of being subjected to persistent denigration, as Sem Ben reminds his intended audience, quote, our ancient religions have not disappeared. They are present and have taken different shapes, close quote. "Mulade begins with a shot of the verdant outskirts of the village of Jeriso, into which under a hot midday sun, a traveling merchant rides his bicycle, hauling a trailer full of wares. He is enthusiastically escorted into the village by an exuberant group of young boys, loudly cheering his arrival. Mercenaire has arrived. Clearly, this is not his first visit to the village, but it will be his last. Towards the end of the film, as Mulade approaches its denouement, Mercenaire is escorted right back to the outskirts of the village, this time by angry, vengeful men, not under bright midday sunlight, but in the shrouded darkness of the night where he will be executed for his transgressions. Although we are not shown his execution, we can confidently surmise that it takes place at about the same distance from the village as the distance from which we saw him enter it. In fact, throughout the course of the film, we are never given anything to see beyond the outskirts of the village. In conformity with Semben's formal strategy for structuring space in the film, we never see the village from a perspective outside it. All we are given and given often are views of the surrounding edge of the village, which, but for one minor exception, are always from a view within the village, circumscribing a space, that looks and feels enclosed. Individuals freely exit and enter the village, but the camera does not follow them anywhere beyond its outskirts, as though the relevant beyond of the village were not not geographical, but ontological. The general impression that is conveyed repeatedly, systematically, is that this village exists in a state of enclosure, as though this state were its default ontological condition. Rendered with a more Heideggerian inflection, we might name name its ontological condition enclosedness. But it is not an absolute state, but rather a tendency towards enclosedness. While there seems to be nothing to see beyond the space of the village, there is something to hear. Leaking into the daily life of the village, especially among the women, are the sounds of the radio, of voices and music coming from beyond. The significance of the radio, of voices speaking to the village from outside, is magnified by the general preoccupation with acquiring batteries for the many radios in the village, good batteries, batteries for which the inhabitants rely on mercenaries. The main pathway into and out of the village leads Mercenaire directly to the village square, where he sets up his wares under the generous shade of a banyan tree. He drinks thirstily from a water urn and surveys the village. On cue, the camera pans across the square at eye level, and as it moves rightward, the first thing that comes into view is the prominent village mosque constructed of mud brick in the spiky cone-shaped style typical of West Africa. There is another significant structure adjacent to the mosque that is as central to the cultural and religious identity of the village as its mosque, the tomb of the first king of the village. But for the time being, Simben withholds its appearance. As the camera continues panning rightward, we see and faintly hear young boys beneath another tree reciting verses from the Koran under the guidance of their teacher. The very next shot cuts abruptly, jarringly, to an aerial view of a mudbird compound, which is the domicile of the polygamous family of Siri Batili, whose second wife, Kole, is the film's chief human protagonist. In the center of the compound, there's a courtyard, in the middle of which stands three cone-shaped storage towers. From this aerial view, we can see that the shape of the courtyard resembles the shape of the village square. Just as cone-shaped storage towers, each of which is capped by by a spiky spire, resemble the cone-shaped spiky spires of the mosque. In case we are not paying attention or have failed to notice the resemblance, Semben, for no other possible reason, shows us a young boy climbing a ladder to the top of one of the storage towers. We are meant to notice this resemblance, not to draw our attention to the continuity of a culturally defining architectural style, but to induce the thought that these two spaces are or will be connected to one another in some fateful way. From that same aerial shot of the Batili family compound, we're given another glimpse of the lush green environs of the village, part of a meticulously sustained strategy to make us see. One, that the borders of the village and the borders of the film are coextensive with one another. And two, that to enter this village and this film is to enter a space that is heterogeneous to what lies outside it. And this heterogeneity, heterogeneity with respect to what lies outside it is reproduced and complicated by the mulade, which imposes onto the normative and political space of the village another order of spatial special heterogeneity altogether. Semben's persistent spatializing strategy painstakingly preserves the condition of enclosedness all the more persuasively to expose and ultimately to shatter it. Shifting back to eye level, the camera shows the women in the compound engaged in their daily routines. Caring for infants and children, tending to domestic animals, preparing food, sweeping the grounds, replenishing the urns with fresh water from the well. In barely more than two minutes, these laconic opening sequences establish both the difference and the connection between the two principal spaces of the film. Before too long, their position in the spatial hierarchy of the village will be reversed and the spatial boundaries between them blurred. Two other spaces will appear, quote unquote, both of which lay claim to the sacred, both of which are inimical to one another. First and foremost, the sacred space of the mulata, which will occupy, so to speak, the betillic compound demarcating a space of its own that is at the same time physically indistinguishable from the space it has occupied. As a consequence, to say that it appears is to speak metaphorically, or so it seems. Although the mulatas appearance may be altogether ephemeral, just what it is that appears is not adequately captured either by literal or by metaphorical ways of speaking. Just what it is that appears in that space blurs the difference between the literal and the metaphor, and the medical and the metaphorical meaning of appears. The Mulata's sacred counterpart and its antithesis is the bucolic grove within which the purification, the genital cutting ritual, takes place. A sacred space whose exact location remains ambiguous throughout the film, as though it were somehow placeless. When it first appears in the film, one presumes that it lies somewhere at the edge of the village. Its deliberately nebulous position in the spatial configuration of the film creates the impression that the ambiguity of its location is somehow essential to the kind of space it is. Regardless of its actual physical location, its its placelessness is is an ontological condition of its appearance as a sacred space. In other words, Its placelessness is not only indispensable, but also constitutive of its claimed status as a sacred space. Quite notably, we are never shown shown anyone entering or departing its sacred space. Neither the women who conduct the ritual nor nor the girls undergoing it. The space where young girls are cut is itself cut off from the village remaining inaccessible and invisible to uninvited eyes, Which is why it is a space that actively it is a space that actively obscures and indeed mystifies not only where, but also how it demarcates its sacred space from the, from the profane spaces that surround it. By contrast, Ben makes a point of showing us various, various individuals entering and leaving the Batili family compound after the mulata has been invoked. A great deal, if not all of what is at stake in mulata, the film turns on the conflict between these mutually antagonistic and mutually incompatible visions of sacred space. One of which is, one of which is constituted as a permanent space of purification, the other as a fugitive space of refuge, offering temporary sanctuary from purification. Throughout the film, the mulatta consistently appears to us as fully transparent and publicly accessible space, embedded almost unnoticeably in the ordinary and everyday space within within which it has settled, and yet it projects a subtle but mysterious otherness. By contrast, the unplaceable space of puri- purification remains opaque and inaccessible, hiding from exposure to the ordinary and the everyday. The otherness it projects seems to depend entirely on mystification. It is as if the sacred space of purification cannot survive exposure to other spaces, that it must remain placeless, imper- impermeable, for to be contaminated, contaminated by other spaces, be they sacred or profane, would mean it's an annihilation. When the camera finally pauses its movement inside the Batili home, It focuses upon a woman sweeping the grounds. This woman is Kole, whose daily domestic routines are suddenly interrupted by the desperate cries of four young girls. Their, Their ceremonial dress marks the girls as runaways fleeing from purification. Supplicating themselves before her, they plead for protection and refuge. We don't want to be cut. As her grown-up daughter, Amsatu, quickly points out to the perplexed Kole, their pleas cannot be refused. They are appealing to an unwritten moral law, like the law of the sea, requiring all to give aid to those in need. Troubled and uncertain about what she should do, Kole confers confers with the other wives, the eldest Hajatu and youngest Alima, both of whom immediately draw Cole's attention, not to her moral obligation to the young girls, but to its more immediate political implications. The women, especially the conflict-averse Alima, want Cole to understand that as soon as she invokes the mulade, it becomes an, unavoid- an unavoidably political matter, not least for Cole who will be accused of inspiring the children's insubordinate behavior in order to vitiate the sanctity of purification, and by implication of seeking to challenge the hierarchical and sexist relations of power that rule the village. As if stirred by the thread of some precipitous change, the village drums can already be heard in the background, beating out their message in a ominous rhythmic pattern. The normative order of the village has been disturbed. Passed over completely in the discussion between the women is the question of whether Cole has the authority to invoke the mulade in the first place. But for the standing she enjoys through marriage to one of the wealthy families in the village, she is in every other respect an ordinary woman, lacking any special religious or, or, or secular status which suggests that regardless of its status, the mulade can be invoked by anyone, anywhere. It is radically democratic. Not only is the mulade invoked by an ordinary woman, it is also invoked in the very space where women do their daily care work, in the gendered space of care. By taking into her protective care these desperate internal refugees, Kola's action releases the practice of care from its domesticated confinement in the sphere of women's work, transforming it into an active political force of its own. The ordinary care work observed in the first few minutes of the film acquires a public political significance that will be as unwelcome as it is unexpected. For Kola's invocation of the mulade also unleashes an unrestrainable non-human agency capable of turning the existing normative order upside down. As extraordinary as the power of the mulare is shown to be, it is represented in the most ordinary, utterly mundane ways. Sempen's efforts to make the extraordinary look this ordinary is connected in part to uh, his claim that this is his most African film, which I can't discuss here. Here, I want only to note that the mulade is devoid of any of the magic realist qualities found in influential African films, such as Jibril Diop Mambedi's Tukibuki, or Suleiman Sissé's Yelin, or more recently, Mati Diop's Atlantics, which also seek to reanimate pre-colonial beliefs and practices. In Semben's film, the mulata is not brought into being through magical incantations, nor does it appear in supernatural form. Strictly speaking, the mulata does not appear at all. Its vexing presence is certainly felt by the villagers, but it is neither seen nor heard. It appears only through or as its effects. To publicly mark the boundary of the melodic, Cole draws across the doorless entry of the batili compound at a height, barely a foot off the ground, a very plain and very worn, tricolored rope. There are no witnesses and no ritual-like gesture to denote that something out of the ordinary is taking place. It all looks so unremarkable, so disarmingly unremarkable, mm-hmm that it can make one insensible to how remarkable it actually is. One gets the feeling, after a number of viewings, that Semben is testing us, testing us to see whether we are really looking, looking attentively, discerningly. And as he is testing us, he is also subtly prompting us to notice how the ordinary and the extraordinary and by implication the sacred and profane, are themselves as intertwined as the multicolored strands of an otherwise unobtrusive piece of rope. Receding from our everyday taken for granted ways of seeing what lies unobtrusively before us will remain as unseen and, and inscrutable so long as we do not look attentively disarmingly Sorry, discerningly. for all of its quiet ordinariness, this mischievously humble piece of rope effortlessly transmits, transmits the power of the mulade, precisely marking and at the same time, casually muddling its sacred boundary. For as we soon see this boundary is irregular and porous, puzzlingly so. On the one hand, to ensure that her young charges honor the sacred boundary conditions of the mulade, Kole warns them in an austere and portentous tone of voice that they must never cross over the rope without her permission. Whoever breaks the law, that law, she says, will be killed by the mulade. The law of the mulade may be an unwritten law, but it too claims the right to violence. On the other hand, everyone else is quite free to cross over the rope whenever they need to, unless they are members of the Salandina, the solemn-faced, ceremonially attired women authorized to conduct the purification ritual. Whenever the other villagers must cross the spatial threshold of the mulade, be they members of the Batili family or village officials, they do so evincing varying degrees of wariness and concern, trying their best to look casual. They're betrayed in one way or another by their fear. Indeed, much of the comic relief in this deadly serious film comes from watching the hesitancy and awkwardness with which various villagers first confront the humble rope, as befits an encounter with something that could not be more ordinary, but in which lies dormant a dreaded impish power that must not be awakened. Comic contrast is provided by the, set, the sight of young goats, a dog, and a toddler blithely interacting with the rope as they would with any ordinary plaything. Semben's camera lingers unhurried on these comic episodes as though it were merely documenting the blissfully mundane charms of quotidian life. Evidently, non-human animals and very young children are not subject to the punitive disposition of the mulade. The ordinary piece of rope is just an ordinary piece of rope. And just as evidently, without even a hint of paradox, the sacred can itself appear altogether ordinary without losing any of its extraordinary power. What do we make then of the porous boundary between the mulada and the profane spaces that surround it? Simben's handling handling of that boundary seems to contradict the classic work on the subject, Mircea Eliade's The Sacred and the Profane. Contrary to Eliade's stringent criteria, the boundary demarcating the sacred space of the mulada is neither strict nor fixed. Nor is there any ontological differentiation of levels of being differentiating higher from lower. Only the forceless and almost imperceptible superimposition of the mulata on the existing domestic space of care, which remains in place, essentially unchanged in its mode of being. Care activities go on just as before. However, the work of care, caring for one's own, and taking others into one's care has acquired an urgency and significance it did not manifest before. Invoking the mulada within the domestic space of care turns the question of care into, quote, a question of life and death, close quote. The palpable truth of Kole's words is amplified in the actions and events that, on, that follow, which unfold at a political, not ontological level. There is no hierophanic interruption to behold, dramatically consecrating sacred space. A generic piece of rope drawn without fuss across the entrance to Cole's home altogether fails to meet the standard of what Iliad calls hierophanic interruption or a holy interruption. The humble rope does not manifest the holy, the eros does not appear. What does appear is a sacred space that can be permeated by the profane and yet retain its distinctness, emanating a variable, inviolable, but not invariable otherness. Despite Semben's resolutely deflationary representation of sacred space, the mulada nonetheless meets the most crucial of Iliad's criteria distinctions. It introduces, quote, sorry, quote, it introduces and is characterized by spatial variation and heterogeneity, whereas profane space remains homogeneous and undifferentiated, close quote. Just as messianic and revolutionary time interrupts homogeneous empty time, as Walter Benjamin put it in the concept of history, Sacred space interrupts homogeneous, undifferentiated space. Its heterogeneity is constitutive of its power, not only to demarcate itself from profane space, but all the more importantly, to reorder space and to alter the relations between existing spaces. This is how a newly invoked sacred space can become, quote, the fixed point, the central axis For all future orientation, close quote. Of course, Eliad is thinking of sacred space as permanently fixed in place by physically unambiguous and unchanging boundaries, for example, temples, churches, stone monuments. But a reordering and reorientation of space can also follow from a spontaneous, temporarily, temporarily, rather, temporarily discontinuous designation of sacred space. Taking a more robustly historical and comparative approach freed from the conceptual constraints of Eliade's rigid, sacred, profane binary, subsequent scholarship presents a picture of sacred space that in just about every respect corresponds to the picture presented in Mulade. A singular coincidence? or simply a perspicuous attunement to the constitution of, to the constitution and diversity of sacred space in situ given simben's geographic cultural and historical location he would have found the emerging scholarly view of the sacred as politically constituted to be stating the obvious not the serendipitous confirmation of the workings of sacred space in his film The political is not anterior to the sacred, it is essential to its constitution. Rather than fixed in some some particular space by some hierophonic event, sacred space can be mobile, set free to appear, if only temporarily, wherever it is invoked or invited. Critics of Iliad have claimed not altogether correctly that power as an essential element of the sacred is entirely missing from his analysis. In a contemporary in a contemporaneous text, the philosopher of religion Gerardus van der Leeuw aptly describes sacred space as quote a center of power, quote, positioned in a place where its effects become perceptible close quote. To become such a locus of power, the sacred has to settle in a space already occupied by others. Quote, the settlement of the sacred is always a conquest. But Iliad also recognized that the consecration of sacred space always involved, now quoting from Iliad, conquering and inhabiting a territory already inhabited by other human beings, Close quote. Indeed, the consecration of land already inhabited by other human beings became the symbolic foundation of colonial dispossession, consecration as dispossession. I want to quote from a remarkable passage from Eliot's text. A territory can be made ours only by creating it anew, that is, by consecrating it. This religious behavior in respect to unknown lands continued even in the West, down to the dawn of modern times. The Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors discovering and conquering territories possession of them in the name of Jesus Christ. The raising of the cross was equivalent to consecrating the country, hence in some sort to a new birth. For through Christ, quoting from Corinthians, all things are become new. The newly discovered country was renewed, recreated by the cross. The alarming moral blindness exemplified in this passage could justifiably monopolize all of one's critical attention. Not only does Iliad fail to question the use of consecration as the sanctifying instrument of colonial conquest and dispossession, he unwittingly but inexcusably identifies religious behavior in respect to unknown lands with genocide. Iliad runs violence and the sacred so closely together that he more or less underclaims the cu- the claim undercuts the claims of his critics that he failed to recognize power as an internal element of the sacred. On the contrary, he recognized it all too well. What he failed to do was to grasp the moral and conceptual implications of that recognition. However, the ultimate significance of this particular passage may lie less in the link Eliad makes between consecration and the violent dispossession of land than in the link he makes between consecration and a new birth, the creation or recreation of a territory, a space, a country. If consecrating an already occupied space is equivalent to creating it anew, The question that must surely be asked is whether a genuine new birth is even possible in a space settled by conquest and dispossession. How can a space already inhabited by other human beings be recreated anew without without the freely given consent and equal participation of those other human beings? Otherwise, such a new birth, quote unquote, would simply constitute one more moment in an endless cycle of violent reoccupation and dispossession. So how does one nonviolently consecrate, which is to say recreate, a land that was occupied by colonial conquest and dispossession? Can we even imagine what that would look like? Or would we have to conclude with René Girard, not only that violence and the sacred are inextricably linked, but that, quote, violence is the heart and secret soul of the sacred. Whether he did so systematically or intuitively, I believe Semben was grappling with these questions in Mulata from the point of its conception to its final cut. We cannot begin to make sense of the role of the mulatta in the film unless we notice just how much these very questions shape the narrative and formal organization of the film. Only when we see how much these questions structure the film, how much they shape each and every scene in the film, will we fully grasp why the mulatta represents much more than a refuge giving sanctuary why it possesses a political agency of its own, and why its political energies are expended on reclaiming and recreating spaces previously occupied by colonial conquest and dispossession. Simben's Mulata shows one way it might look, one way it could be in place without becoming one more moment in a cycle of violent reoccupation and dispossession. Now, his answers to these questions are not final and or, or, or equivocal, but they are extremely suggestive, even if they are also layered with caution. The contrast he draws between two visions of the sacred is most certainly compelling, not least because he does not cleanse his preferred vision of the sacred of its potential for violence. The film does not end cleanly on a note of un- ambiguous triumph. There is a victory, but it is partial and qualified. But there is no doubt that Semben is taking sides on the issue. Not only does he choose to settle the mulata in the gendered space of care, Semben places it where care work is done, making the significance of care for the other subversely and explicitly political. And tellingly, propitiously, the mulata settles into an already occupied space without conquest or dispossession. The mulatta does not seek out a space to occupy, the occupation of which requires violent conquest. It is called upon to occupy, to settle into an already occupied space in order to protect a group of helpless, desperate children. And it is called upon by an ordinary woman, herself called upon by those same children. In other words, the mulata doesn't occupy the batili home by force. It is invited to inhabit it. The sanctuary and refuge the mulatta provides is itself placed in the caring hands of women who through its occupation discover the political meaning of care and expand the space of care beyond the domestic space into which it has been segregated and depoliticized. We could say that the mulatta inhabits the gendered space of care on the basis of another kind of settlement, by which I mean an implicit mutual understanding or agreement. That settlement consists in a a kind of mutual obligation. In return for the refuge and protection that the mulata provides, Mumps makes an ongoing commitment to respect its space, to be true to it and not use it instrumentally or desecrate its spirit of justice, protecting these children at any cost. Later in the film, the village elders, the men, try to whip her into submission to revoke um, the mulada. She does not do so. It's an example of the at any cost that I'm referring to. Once the mulada inhabits the domestic space of the Batili home, it becomes the new axis around which all other spaces in the village now turn. As the locus of power in the village has shifted, the central actors entangled in the ensuing crisis of authority and legitimacy, discovers each in their own way, the reorientation of spatial relationships and the correlative alteration of power relationships. The Salandina, once apprised of the whereabouts of the missing girls, are the first implicitly to acknowledge, acknowledge this change grudgingly, resentfully. Arriving en masse at the entrance to the Batili home, they demand an audience with Kole, but maintain a cautious distance from the sacred threshold, wary of provoking the mulada. They wish to reclaim their authority, but it is no longer one they can simply assert. They have to negotiate with Kole, the principal occupant of the new center of power in the village. Since they are only interested in a reinstatement of the status quo, in this case, the return of the runaways to complete the purification ritual, the negotiations will fail. As Kola is about to greet the Salandina at the entrance to her home, Hajatu, the senior wife, arms her with a machete. At the doorway, Kola is addressed by the chief Exisus, who wields a staff around which is coiled a silver two-headed snake. She reminds Kohle that it was she who purified her, along with many of the other mothers in the village, and then rebukes Kohle for holding up the purification of the young girls. Kohle replies Truth be told, you cut me and stitched me up twice, twice, and you also buried my first two children. Affirming her binding commitment to the spirit of the mulada, she declares, these children requested protection, and they'll get it. And then, tracing the line of the rope with her machete, and then pointing it at the Salandina, Kole warns, anyone who crosses this rope will be punished by the Mulade. However, she will not hold the girls against their will and lets them know that that if they no longer want her protection, they are free to cross over the rope. But the girls firmly reiterate their resolve not to be cut. The Selandina retreat, but not before the chief Iksizu issues a warning. Kole, you are too subversive. I will have to neutralize your powers. In response, Cole, Cole twirling her machete leads a joyful celebratory dance of the women and children until the sight of her visibly indignant brother-in-law returning from the fields to a village dramatically different from the one he left in the morning brings the dancing and celebration to an, up, to an abrupt end. Cole and the women supporting her will not show such deference the next time she leads a, celebra- a celebratory dance at the end of the film. Caught up in the tension-filled confrontation between, between Cole and the Salandina, we may not have noticed that the Salandina's striking red coral robes with brown and yellow trim are composed of the very same colors as those intertwined in the Milata's rope. Doubtless, Zemban wanted to use the interplay of matching colors to, to subtly convey the emerging and growing conflict between these discordant manifestations of the sacred. It is a contrast which Simben develops methodically throughout the film. For these two spaces not only represent discordant ideas of the sacred, the meaning of the sacred as such as such is at stake in the confrontation between them. The contrast drawn between an idea of the sacred, represented by the humble ordinary piece of rope, and one represented by the Salandina's imperious demeanor and pontific- pontifical and pontifical robes is foreshadowed portentously and altogether enigmatically in a prior scene. In conversation with the children under her protection, Cole discovers that they called out for help, her help because they had heard that Cole had not let the Salandina cut her surviving daughter, Amsatu, risking thereby the disapprob- disapprobation of the villagers and the stigmatization of her daughter as a bilakoro, an impure woman unsuitable for marriage. Cole's refusal to comply with the coercive norm of purification led them to believe that she was their only possible lifeline, at which point, without any further comment or explanation, Cole tells them, you should know that purification is one thing, and mulada is a different thing. In that moment, so very early in the film, it is not immediately, immediately clear how to parse the meaning of Kohli's words. Moreover, given that they are spoken in the context of a casual getting to know each other kind of conversation, it is easy to miss the momentous significance of the distinction Kohli has drawn. It seems like an odd thing to say, especially to that to these young girls, creating the impression that it is not actually intended for the ears. To make sense of Cole's distinction, one has to recognize that it is not drawn for them, for they are not its primary addressee. It is a distinction that belongs to an altogether different conversation, not the one that Cole is having with these young girls who in any case are in no position to grasp its oracular meaning, but rather the meta conversation into which Zemben is inviting his primary audience. Once we can recognize to whom this distinction is addressed, we can treat it as an interpretive device for making sense of the film as a whole. Namely, as staging a second order conflict between inherited African traditions in general and in particular between two visions or conceptions of the sacred. It then becomes compellingly clear that Semben is deploying the distinction to ground an argument he is presenting to his African audience. I know you can all see that mulatta and purification represent different and separate traditions. Of course, they are both our traditions, but they are not both deserving of our allegiance. One remains worthy of our allegiance, the other not at all. Hear me out and I will show you why. Alongside the argument over which traditions deserved to be preserved and which should be abandoned, Semben is also staging a more oblique argument over the very meaning of the sacred. For the traditions in question are not just any traditions. They claim a sacred status, which in each case appeals to a different idea of the sacred. The last thing we should suppose Sam to be arguing is that the sacred has no place in our lives. What he wants us to consider is the question of what the sacred is or should be, how it should figure in our lives, including what kind of authority it should have, and in what kinds of places. Later in my paper, I discuss how Mulata inverts, how Mulata's inversion of the colonial space of dispossession by imagining another way to inhabit that space can also be read as a cinematic manifestation of the idea of heterotopia outlined by Michel Foucault in a remarkable paper written in 1967. In that paper, Foucault claimed that modern space, unlike modern time, has not been fully desacralized, that it it contains the possibility of an other space, a heterotopic space, which he argued was not simply utopian, a space that was essentially unreal, but rather a space that is partially actualized in in the here and now. Quoting from that essay, there are also and probably in every culture, in every civilization, real places, actual places, places that are formed in the very founding of society, which are something like counter sites, actually realized utopias, which because they are outside and at the same time localizable, they have the power to reflect or depict contest, and invert existing spaces. Semben does just that, all of that. It creates a counter-sight is outside in a film and localizable to render imaginable, conceivable, the possibility of creating space anew and inhabiting it anew in a way that might finally break the cycle of violent occupation and dispossession and and put into question the idea that violence is inescapably the heart and soul of the sacred.